This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. Hear the word of God as recorded in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. I wish I could stand before you this morning and tell you that every time I have faced a trial, I have come through it victoriously. But the reality is that there are times that I've handled difficulties better than at others. There have been days when a problem has arisen that I've been able to say with confidence and with perfect peace, God will provide. He's gracious. This will work out. But there are other days... Oh, there are other days when my response is not as spiritual. Or when trials come calling, my answer is one of anger or frustration, despair, and maybe even doubt. And I suspect that my testimony is yours also. Trials bring up a lot of questions. Questions that cause us at times to take a deep look into our own hearts and our lives. Because sometimes the trials that we encounter will be stepping stones. They lift us up to a closer walk with God. But there are other times when those boulders, those those stones feel like boulders on top of our chest, crushing us. Now, there is no doubt that according to the scripture, God brings trials into our lives. We say that God is sovereign, and we have to recognize that means God is sovereign in the good times as well as the difficult times. So when those times of trials comes, it is God who is at work. And that's one of the things that we have to remember, is that as God brings trials into our lives, they are for a purpose. And that purpose is so that we will know him and rely upon him. So God brings challenges into our daily lives that we will know him and learn to rely upon him that he is faithful. I think one of the passages that explains trials, in my opinion, better than any other is found in the letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, specifically his second letter. In that letter, as Paul wrote, he said in chapter 1, verse 8, for we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, he doesn't define what that affliction is. 
Later in this very same book, Paul will go through a whole chorus of problems he encountered. Problems from being shipwrecked, from being uh, lost at sea, floating on cargo for days, to going hungry, to being beaten, to being imprisoned. But in this case, he doesn't tell us what it is, but he does tell us the effect of this trial. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Whatever the trial was, Paul felt like it was more than he could handle. It was greater than my strength. I despaired of life. He says, in fact, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So Paul encountered something that was beyond his ability to deal with. But notice in verse 9, the middle of it, he says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul says that in the midst of this trial, it was more than he could handle. So don't ever feel guilty if you're faced with a circumstance that is more than you have the strength to bear. That's what God wants you to know. You're not able, but he is. And that circumstance that is challenging is meant to bring you closer to God. Think for a moment physiologically. We see these, these people with massive muscles. How do those massive muscles come to be? These bulging biceps. Well, we all know they happen through eating ice cream and getting lots of sleep. Yes, preach it. Let it be, Lord. Let it be. No, it's quite the contrary, isn't it? In actuality, those muscles are made large because they're broken. As a person is lifting weights, it actually causes damage to the muscle. It weakens the muscle, but over time, God created the muscle so that it heals itself by creating more fibers, thus making it bigger and stronger. That in the weakness and the pain, it becomes stronger and what it can be. So it is in our trials. God brings trials that we might know we can't do it, but He can, and thereby rely more on Him and know Him. That's one of the reasons God brings trials into our lives. Another reason is this, so we can comfort others and give glory to God. Just before talking about these afflictions that he encountered, Paul had written in this very same chapter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Now, why does he comfort us? So we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, God is saying that within community, as you have gone through a difficult time and have experienced the strength of God, the peace of God, the comfort of God, you can open your life to encourage others. And church, that is crucial because I promise you the one lie that Satan whispers in the ear of every believer when they are going through a trial is this. Nobody understands. You're alone. Nobody knows. Nobody's there for you. And we can shatter that lie by simply speaking the truth that, you know what? I've gone through trials and I've seen God be faithful. God will be near you. That's how we need to respond. But what about when we don't respond as we should? What about when we face a trial 
And instead of relying on God's provision and confessing our weakness, we doubt God's provision and worry becomes to us like a shadow following us at noonday. What about when we live with constant grief and we wonder, where is God's love? We find ourselves pulling away from the very body of Christ he's given us, doubting, doubting God's love. What about when we see those who deny God prospering while those who are faithful struggle and it causes us to doubt the justice of God and we begin to think that following God isn't worth it. James 1, 12 through 15 deals with these, this issue. Is God to blame whenever we fail at a trial? When God brings us into a trial or a difficult circumstance, is he setting us up for failure? Verse 12 is a hinge verse. What I mean by that is it's a verse that makes a turn. In other words, verse 12 is going to repeat some things that he has already said, that James has already written, and then it's going to pivot to deal with this new question that has been introduced. Now, verse 12 teaches us, first of all, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In many ways, he's simply repeating what he said in verse 2. He's saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's teaching us to remain faithful in the midst of adversity, because when we are faithful, we will be blessed. The word blessed there is an adjective. It's an adjective that means joyful, confident, favored by God. It doesn't mean just glib or being just happy. It doesn't mean a person who is truly blessed is walking around in the midst of adversity with this silly grin on their face, whistling zippity-doo-dah. The reality is that speaks of unreality. Because you see a person going through adversity that's whistling zippity-doo-dah, you're thinking, what world are they living in? Blessedness goes much deeper than that. Blessedness deals, I believe, with the concept of shalom. That in the midst of adversity, you can acknowledge this is hard and it hurts, but I have a deep peace. That's blessedness. That's having a confidence in God that says, I have a walk with him that cannot be changed by any circumstance that I encounter. It is the attitude of saying, this trial is hard, but God is good and will see us through. It is saying we are grieving, but we know that God will be faithful. And notice this blessedness comes through remaining steadfast under trial. That idea of remaining steadfast means a courageous endurance. Holding your ground. May not be moving forward, but you're not moving backward. It's saying, here I stand. It's being immovable. As I was preparing for this message and was thinking about that idea of remaining steadfast under trial, my mind went to the French resistance who fought against the Germans after Germany invaded France in May of 1940. After Germany occupied the nation of France and estimated 500,000 French men and women worked as part of the resistance to undermine Germany's occupation. They stood fast. Many of them paid the price. More than 90,000 resistors were either killed, tortured, or deported by the Germans. That's standing fast. 
No matter the cost, I will not surrender. And notice James mentions a reward. All right, the one who remains steadfast has this shalom, this blessedness, the favor of God. And he also says that when he has remained steadfast under trial, he, has, he will receive the crown of life. Now, this is not the only mention of crowns within the Scripture. In fact, there are three that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's the crown of life, James 1, 12, Revelation 2, and Revelation 3. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, and the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, when it says the word crown in the New Testament, it's not referring to the gold crowns that kings wear. Rather, it's a Stephanos, in other words, a wreath that the victor of an Olympic event has won, and that is their medal. Instead of getting gold medals at that time, they received a wreath. A crown depicts honor and blessing for those who wear them. It's a way of recognizing that you have received something. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, verse 10, it says that joy will crown the head of the redeemed. In other words, the crown of joy will be on the head of the redeemed. Isaiah 28, 5 says, The Lord himself will be a crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. So God himself is a crown for God, for his own people. Now the point of crowns is that our glory, our reward, will be life, righteousness, and joy. Now for many, when they think of crowns in heaven, they get this very literal picture of a golden crown that they'll have and be wearing. But think about that for just a moment. We've already established that the image of streets of gold in heaven is simply saying the things that we value on this earth are not what's valued in heaven. So why would you want to be wearing asphalt on your head? Crowns point to something much greater and deeper than that. The crowns are that of joy, of life, righteousness, and of glory. The point he's making is this. That the one who is steadfast will experience the life that God has promised to its utmost. A crown communicates the value of these things. Because if we say, well, getting a crown is my goal, we are simply then using God to get something else. Tragically, that's often how we think of being in God's presence. Take, for example, the idea of mansions. The idea of a heavenly mansion is based on a bad translation of John 14 taken from the Latin. A mansion in Latin spoke of a, a dwelling place, a room, not some 14-bedroomed, three-bathroomed swimming pool that you'll be living next to someone in glory. The point is being with God. Jonathan Edwards, I think, spoke to this very, very powerfully in a sermon he preached in 1740 called The, the Portion of the Righteous. He said this, the reward of the saints in heaven was nothing other than God himself, who would himself fill the needs and desires of those who had served him in this present age. Now, let me try to clarify that a little bit. What Edwards is saying is that it will not dampen the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others who have more glory before them. Because everyone in heaven will be perfectly happy and perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into the ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, bear with me here. Imagine you're at the beach. You're standing in front of the ocean. And you have three vessels in front of you. You have a 12-ounce cup. 
You've got one of these gallon jugs that people carry water in with a handle to drink all throughout the day and a five-gallon bucket. You get up with a 12-ounce cup and you run to the ocean and you dip that into the water. Is that cup full of ocean water? Work with me. Yes, it is. All right, you get this gallon jug. You run and you fill it up with ocean water. Is it full of ocean water? All to its capacity. Now, you go, you get the five-gallon bucket, you do the same thing. You dip it in the water, you've got five gallons of pure ocean water at that point. What Edwards is saying is that our reward and glory will be the capacity to which we are filled with God's life, love, joy, and happiness. Every person will be filled to the capacity with which we are, have earned here on earth. Each person will be full. So there's no jealousy in heaven. And the reward is God himself. For what could be greater than God himself and knowing him and being filled with his love and life and joy and peace? Now, there are those then who take a minimalist approach. They'll say, well, you know what? If I get to heaven and I just got a 12-ounce cup full of joy, that's enough for me. Hallelujah. Praise God. Think about that for just a moment. What else is there in this life you take that approach toward? Do you take that approach toward getting paid at work? You know, boss, I know you said you could pay me up to $100 an hour. No need to. $5 an hour will be fine just as long as I'm getting some money. Is that your attitude toward, toward money? Please say no. You say, no, I want to I earn as much as I can. Why would we want to shortchange knowing God forever in glory? That's the point of crowns. It's saying the one who has been steadfast under trial is going to be full of life. That will be his glory in heaven, knowing the life that God has promised now, what that means is we can stand firm in trials by this, looking forward. This has a forward orientation that says, rather than just focusing on the immediate trial I'm in, I'm going to look forward to the crown of life that God has promised. We as believers are a people of promise. We are not home yet. There is glory that awaits us beyond what we can imagine. The things of this earth will pale in comparison to the glory of God. And we need to be reminded that whatever difficulties we have here are momentary wisp of fog compared to the glory of God. Look forward, people. This world's not our home. Don't become fearful. Don't think this is all there is. Don't think that our lives are simply defined by the problems we have. We are defined by Christ with a glory that awaits us that is greater than we could ever imagine. The second thing is to develop this, a greater love for the Lord. I want you to notice the connection in verse 12. This crown of life God has promised to those who love him. Well, how do you get the crown of life? By standing firm in the test, by being steadfast. So if you stay steadfast and you get the crown of life, and the crown of life is promised to those who love God, that means love for God brings about a steadfastness that says, I love the Lord more than anything. And maybe even as Job said, even though he slay me, yet will I love him. Love is the motivation. Loving God. William Manchester is an Englishman who has written an incredible trilogy on the life of William Churchill. However, another book of his is equally as powerful as that 
trilogy. It's a book he wrote about his years in the Pacific in World War II. The title of the book is Goodbye Darkness. You see, William Manchester did something as a young man that it took him over 35 years to figure out. He was wounded in one of the battles on the Pacific Islands. He was taken behind the lines. He was at a hospital, received the Purple Heart. And then he did something that it took him 35 years to figure out. On a Sunday morning, he got up out of that bed in the hospital, went AWOL to rejoin his platoon at the front lines. He writes in his book, Goodbye Darkness, I understand at last why I jumped that hospital on that Sunday 35 years ago and in violation of orders returned to the front an almost certain death. It was an act of love. Those men on the line were my family, my home. They had never let me down and I couldn't do it to them. I had to be with them rather than to let them die and me live with the knowledge that I might have saved them. Men I now knew do not fight for flag or country, for the Marine Corps or glory or any other abstraction. They fight for one another. Love. Love for God and God rewards that with life. Now as I said earlier, verse 12 is the hinge. We have looked at the positive part, the the reminder of what has gone before, meaning we have finished the introduction to seeing how you'd respond. But now he really dives into the question. What about when we sin during a trial? What if God sends a trial and when he does, we fail? Has God set us up? Now, throughout these next verses, verses 13, 14, and 15, you're going to notice a change in the English translation But it's the same Greek word as trial. Okay, so in verse 12, we see the word trial. When you read in verse 13, let no one say he is tempted, that he is being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. Four uses of the word tempt. Same Greek word as trial. Verse 14. But when each person is tempted, he is Lord and enticed by his own desire. That word tempted in verse 14, same Greek word as trial. Same word, but a different meaning in the context. And here's the difference. A trial is meant to strengthen your faith and bring you closer to God. A temptation is meant to destroy you. So here's the answer to the question. God does not bring about a trial to destroy you. Because according to verse 13, God tempts no one. The trial is not meant to bring your destruction through sin. Notice the logic that James employs. No one can say God is tempting, that God is enticing to be destroyed, because God cannot be tempted with evil. God is light. In Him there is no darkness. There is no impulse within God to do wrong or to sin. This leads to this conclusion. Because God has no impulse or desire to sin, he's not going to lead us to sin. That's why he says, since God can't be tempted with evil, he himself tempts no one. So God is light, there's no evil, God's not going to do evil, therefore he will not lead us to do evil. Think of it like this, when my son Samuel was younger, eight or nine years old, he would come, he went through this phase where he would come to me frequently, daddy, daddy, daddy. Will you buy me a snake? 
Now, I am not going to say that I do not like snakes, but I do not like snakes. And I would tell him, son, I love you. We can talk about dogs, cats. I'll even buy you a hamster. But I am not going to buy you a snake. I don't like snakes, and I'm not going to bring a snake into this house. I will not do that because I'm not a fan of snakes. I'm not going to buy one for you. That's the idea here. God is not a God of sin. He's not going to lead us into sin. That's where the real issue is revealed in verse 14. And we are tempted. In other words, when we are brought away from God, it's because of our own desire. Not God. A desire goes beyond what is rational. That we long for things that we often can't explain. There are desires that are indeed God-given for food, relationships, intimacy. And the temptation comes in the midst of trials to seek to fill those desires outside of God's will. That in the stress of the moment, we seek to find solution outside of God. That's where sin comes in. That's why James writes about being lured and enticed. For those fishermen, those are are terms about bait. Lured and enticed speaks of a, a spinner that would draw us toward the sin. And it's our own desires driving us that. But what happens is there's a hook in it. There's a hook inside. And in that trial of loneliness then, the question is, when we are desiring companionship so bad, where will we turn? In that trial of chronic pain, where will you go? Will you turn away from God or turn to Him? In that failure, that trial of failure, what will you do? Will you say, Lord, I will keep seeking you or will you give up? In each case, the temptation will be to turn from God. And notice this happens slowly. Desire conceives and gives birth. That doesn't happen immediately. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It happens over time when it is fully grown. It may take time, but eventually our desires that lead us away from God will produce death. Whether it be in relationships, decisions we have made, or in our own hearts. So how do we keep this from happening? Well, first is this. We take responsibility for our actions. Can't blame God. The blame game does not bring healing. So when he says in verses 13 through 15, each person is tempted by their own desire. Healing starts when we say, Lord, I've done it. It's not you, God. I've done it. That's why later in the book of James, he will address confessing your sins one to another. The blame game never helps. It didn't help in the Garden of Eden. When God confronted Adam and Adam says, God, it's the woman you made for me. It's her fault. And the blame game goes on down until finally each person realizes I'm responsible before God. Healing starts when we say, Lord, help me. I've done this. And then we need to dive into discipleship. Discipleship is about the redirection of desires. 
desires are part of the fabric of our humanity, yet they have to be directed according to God's will. Temptation will seek to use our desires to their purposes. So discipleship is continually recalibrating this to go in the direction that we should go. It's like a recalibrating an old GPS if you had to move your phone in a figure eight or drive your car in a circle. It's recalibrating it. That's what discipleship is. It's bringing us back to where God would have us go with our desires. So trials are like tests. They reveal our hearts. At the best, the trial we encounter brings us to rely upon God and know Him. But a trial is a temptation when we reject God. And that rejection of God is not God's fault. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is life. And we're going to see next week that God gives us every good and perfect gift that we need, even in the midst of trials. Would you bow your heads with me at this time? I want you to know this morning as we come to a time of, of worshiping God as our service concludes, the altar is open if you want to come and pray. As I shared earlier, we all share the same story. There are times we have been victorious in our trials and then times we've yielded to temptation in the midst of them. That's why this morning I want you to know that God is faithful. This morning you recognize that you have turned away from God in the midst of your trial. He has not finished with you. He is not wiping the dust from his hands saying, that's it, they're done. They made their choice. God is gracious and even now he is pulling him, you back to himself. Come to him. It does no good to fight against God. He loves you. No matter how big the failure may be, know that His grace is sufficient. He wants you to have life, my brother or sister. He wants you to know joy, even in the midst of hardship. Father, thank You for the grace You give us. Lord, draw us unto Yourself, O Lord, that we would not give in to our desires that would lead us away from You, but that we would seek You in all things and give glory to Your name, that we would know and have the fullness of life in your presence. Grant this, O Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.